0: Psalms 41 verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. We've been looking at Messianic Psalms on Sunday morning. Messianic Psalms are those Psalms that were written about a thousand years before Christ that tell us a lot about His his life, His his death, His resurrection. And believe it or not, there's an order, a chronology to what I'm doing up here. I haven't mentioned it up to this point, but let me kind of put the Psalms we've we've looked at so far in their perspective so you see the flow of what we're doing. We started with Psalm chapter 2 which takes us into eternity past. It's the psalm that says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And in that message, I gave you a couple of different perspectives on what that might be, uh, might mean. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And the question was, on what day did God the Father beget God the Son? And there are a couple of ways you could answer that. You could tie it into the resurrection and say it's on that day that, that he was begotten and declared to be the Son of God with power. In fact, that's what Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 1. Uh, He said that God declared Jesus Christ to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And so the resurrection was a declaration. And some say that's the day God declared him to be the Son of God. And I'm not going to argue with that, and I think that's true. There's another way to take it, though, and it's this. Theologians take the notion of of this, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, as a decree from God. And actually it's not a theological thing, that's what the text says in Psalm chapter 2. This is the decree of God. All of God's decrees are eternal decrees. And for that reason, we're looking here at an eternal begetting. And maybe we're talking about an eternal day. And while that kind of boggles my imagination, and I, I can't get my mind around it, I'm not talking about man, I'm talking about God. And there's this eternal aspect to the person of Christ. And that eternal aspect encompasses everything about him. Eternity past, his period on earth, and eternity future. And what this psalm really does is it kind of sets the stage for the Messiah, who from eternity past has been the eternal Son of God, who became a man in time, and died on the cross for our sins, who rose from the dead, and who then will reign over all things in the eternity future. So I, I thought that an appropriate psalm for kind of setting the stage for our study of the Psalms. Chronologically, the next one in order is Psalm chapter 40. Psalm chapter 40 is the one that says, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, I don't remember that the last couple of weeks, it's because it wasn't the last couple of weeks. This was the text we used on Christmas Sunday, because it's really the Christmas song. Uh, it tells why Christ took on human flesh and became a man. And it really told us three things about him. The reason that he became a man was so that he could die on the cross for our sins. Another reason he became a man was to fulfill what the scriptures had said about him. And the third reason Christ became a man was so that he could fulfill the will of God. So in these two psalms, we have first the perspective of the eternal nature of the Son of God. And then we have the explanation as to why he became a man. And then last week, we looked at Psalm 91, and it was all about the, the temptation of Christ. We saw last week that Satan quoted from this psalm, uh, when he tried to tempt Christ to, to stray from God's will for his life. But in fact, Satan twisted the scriptures to his own end. Jesus saw through that twisting and put Satan in his place. But that was all about the temptation of Christ. So in the Psalms so far, we've seen that Christ is the eternal Son of God. We have seen that he took on flesh and blood so he could die on the cross for our sins. We've seen something about his temptation. And this morning we come to Psalm 41, verse 9. And it says this, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Now, whom do you suppose the psalmist is talking about when he said that? And you can just say it out loud. Whom do you think it's talking about? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a problem when I ask. I hear things, but I don't hear things. What did you say? Yes. Judas, thank you very much. The thing is, if you're going to talk to me, you've got to talk loud, because you know, these things are great, but they're not perfect. You look at this, you think, well, that's talking about Judas Iscariot. And I agree, and I think it was. But when David wrote this psalm, he wasn't thinking about Judas Iscariot. He was probably thinking about someone else, and very likely the person he was thinking about was a man named Ahithophel. Let me tell you the story of Ahithophel very quickly. David was king over Israel. He was later in life. His kingdom was established. He was at peace. And it was during that time that his son Absalom turned against him. Well, up to that point, Ahithophel had been a close friend of David and a trusted advisor. You might say that he was the Jared Kushner of his day. He was the chief advisor to the king. And there's a passage in 2 Samuel that says that the advice that Ahithophel gave was as if it was an angel from God. Because his advice was was that good. When David's son... Absalom turned against him and tried to pull off this coup and take over his father's kingdom. Ahithophel, who had been David's close advisor and friend, turned against David, betrayed him, and took Absalom's side and tried to convince Absalom to go after his father and kill him very quickly while he still had a chance of success. That's quite a story, isn't it? And so later, when it all settled down and David's back on the throne, he's writing this psalm, And as he wrote, I think he was thinking of Ahithophil. He said, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted his heel against me. David was thinking probably of Ahithophil, but God was thinking of someone else. Uh, Yeah, God probably saw that David's perspective was Ahithophil, but God was looking beyond David and Ahithophil to the greater David, Jesus Christ, and the man who would betray him, who in fact was Judas Iscariot. I know this psalm is messianic because of the way that Christ used it. This morning we're going to look at Judas Iscariot. And it's really interesting to me that the Bible says as much in the Old Testament as it does about Judas Iscariot. There are at least five passages in your Old Testament that tell us something about Judas Iscariot and what he would be like. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We'll start with Psalm 41, then we'll look at several other passages of Scripture and see what the Old Testament tells us or what it anticipated about Judas Iscariot. And just for the sake of full disclosure, it's an outline I've borrowed from a book called The Messianic Psalms by Norbert Lyeth. I just really liked his framework for this. Here are five things about Judas Iscariot that were anticipated in the Old Testament. Thing number one is this, his betrayal. And that's the verse we're looking at this morning. Again, I know this is messianic because of the way that Christ used it. If you would turn to your Bibles, please, to John chapter 13. Let me set the stage for what's happening in John 13. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. This is the night of his betrayal. This was the night in which he established what we know as the Lord's Supper. This is his last evening of earthly ministry with his disciples. And it's on that occasion that Jesus laid his garments aside and and took a towel and washed his disciples' feet. When he was finished washing their feet, he then encouraged them to follow his example and wash one another's feet. And I'm looking now at John chapter 13, verse 18. Jesus says, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now, if you're paying attention there, when Jesus said that the scripture might be fulfilled, what verse did he just quote? Well, that was Psalm 41.9, the same one we're looking at this morning. What Jesus is telling us is that psalm is really a prophecy, and it's about me. And it's about to be fulfilled. Now, let me ask you a question. Up until that time in the upper room when Jesus said that, do you think anybody who read Psalm 41.9 looked at that and said, well, that's talking about somebody who's going to betray the Messiah. Think that ever entered anybody's head? I think I can pretty well guarantee you that it never did. For a thousand years, when pious Jews read that psalm, what came to their mind, if they thought about it at all, was, well, David's talking here about Ahithophel. It was a dastardly deed that Ahithophel did. And indeed it was, and that would have been correct, except Jesus says, this is a prophecy. And it's about me. You know, that just makes me wonder how much more of that Old Testament is about Jesus that we just don't have eyes to see. How about you? I mean, I look at that and and, and what Jesus said here, and I think, wow. There are depths in the Old Testament that we've never plumbed about Jesus Christ. If you want to know Jesus Christ, well, by all means, read the Gospels. They're going to tell you clearly about him. But there is much to learn of him in the Old Testament scriptures as well. That's why Jesus told the the Jews of his day, search the scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament when he said that. They had what we know as the Old Testament. He said, search the scriptures, for they are they which testify of me. You want to know Jesus Christ, search the word. From Genesis to Revelation, And if we only only had eyes to see and ears to hear, I think we'd be amazed at how much of it has to do with Jesus Christ. In fact, I wonder if during eternity, when we're in the eternal state, if we won't spend eternity plumbing the depths of the Old Testament. See, God is infinite, and because he's infinite, we will never know everything about him. Yes, Paul told the Corinthians that we'll know as we're known. I'm not quite sure what that means, but what I I think it doesn't mean is that we'll know everything. We get to heaven, we don't suddenly have all knowledge. We get to heaven, we're in a classroom to learn more about God. And I think we'll spend eternity learning more and more and more about him. And I shouldn't be surprised if one of the primary textbooks isn't the Old Testament that some of you just don't like reading because it's boring. There's a lot there if we just had eyes to see. I want you to notice something else from the John passage. John chapter 13, verse 19. Notice what Jesus said as to why he told this. He says, Now I tell you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. I'm telling you now, so when it's all done, you'll know who I am. Jesus was using this psalm to build the faith of his disciples. Imagine the impact it later had on them. I mean, put yourself back in the context. This is the night of Jesus' arrest. As far as the disciples are concerned at this point, everything's great. I mean, they're fellowshipping with their master and enjoying one another. They just had a great meal. And now Jesus will take them to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's when the bottom starts dropping out of the tub. I mean, that's where he will be betrayed and turned over to the Jewish authorities. And that's when the disciples will scatter for fear of their life. And that's when the next day Jesus will hang on the cross for their sins. That's when all of their hopes, all of their expectations will be dashed. And they will wonder, who was this man Jesus Christ anyway? Jesus is anticipating that. He says, I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. At some point, when it all settled down and Christ had risen from the dead and his disciples were sitting around thinking about that last night in that upper room, one of them said, you remember what Jesus said? I told you this before it happened. I took this ancient psalm and I said, that's talking about me and this is about to happen. I told you that. So when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he, uh, he is God, okay? That would be both a confirmation and a consolation to his disciples. A confirmation that he was who he said he was and a consolation that he had it all under control. For those of you who have ever struggled with your faith or who have ever doubted that Jesus is who he said he was, I invite you to ponder that passage. Because it was just as true for us as it was for them. This ancient passage that Jesus took was meant to build the faith of his disciples. It can build your faith as well if you'll ponder it and dwell on it and consider it. The Old Testament tells us a number of things about Judas. The first thing is this it's about his betrayal. A second thing we learn about Judas from the Old Testament. This is Psalm 55. And I think I'm just going to give you the references and read them. You can turn if you like. I'm not going to slow myself down by turning to them. But this is Psalm chapter 55 and verse 12. He says, It was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man mine equal, my guide, mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked unto the house of God in company. Verse 13 that I've just read from that text, it says, You're mine acquaintance. That could well be translated, You were my close friend. It wasn't an enemy, it was my close friend. So I think this is speaking about Judas Iscariot. Because Judas was a close friend of Jesus Christ. Let's think about his life for a few moments. Early in his ministry, Jesus had a lot of disciples. When I say the word disciples, you probably think about the 12, and I understand that because that's kind of what we've learned to think. The disciples are the 12. Jesus had a lot of disciples, uh, probably several hundred disciples following him around. And one day, he gathered his disciples around them, and he chose 12 that they should be with him. That was what we know as the apostolic band, and that became known as the 12 Disciples. How would you have liked to have been one of those 12? Wouldn't that have been something? Out of the hundreds who followed Christ, he looked at you and called your name and said, Come, you be one of my disciples. One of them was Judas Iscariot. For the next three years, he lived with Christ. He walked all over Palestine. They didn't have buses or wheeled transportation. It was all on foot. They were north in, in Galilee, they were south in Judea, they were west on the, sea of, uh, on the Mediterranean Sea in Tyre and Sidon. He traveled all over the place with Jesus Christ, slept with him, ate with him, joked with him, talked with him. He knew Jesus Christ. Judas was one whose understanding Jesus opened. You remember in Matthew 13 when Jesus was telling the parables to the the people on the hillside and his disciples pulled him aside and said, Lord, why do you speak to them in parables? Nobody understands this stuff. And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you. And so he opened their eyes and helped them understand the parables. Judas was one of them. Jesus, on a few occasions, sent his disciples out to minister to expel demons and to heal the sick. Judas was empowered to expel demons and to heal the sick. Judas was so trusted that the apostolic band had a little bag of money. He was the treasurer who kept the money. The psalm that I read says that he walked in the house of God in company. Judas was with Jesus every time he went to the temple during his earthly ministry. He was in and out with Jesus as he uh, came and went. Judas was a friend of Jesus. That in mind, it's interesting that Christ recognizes that. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 26, and the passage here is that they've been in the garden of Gethsemane. Christ has prayed three times, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, thy will be done. He asked his disciples to pray along with him, they all fell asleep. And now he's done. He's resigned, and the time has come. Matthew 26, 47 says, while Jesus yet spoke to his disciples, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, Came and with him a great multitude of swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. Forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, master. By the word the way the word master translates the Greek word rabbi, simply means teacher. Hail, Rabbi. It's interesting that you never find Judas saying, Jesus calling him Lord. He never says, Hail, Lord, but he does say, Hail, Rabbi. And he kissed Jesus, and Jesus said to him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? I don't think there's any sarcasm here. I don't think there's any irony. I don't think Jesus is being snide. I think he's speaking from that great heart of love. And he looked Judas, I think, in the eye. I said, Friend. Some friend Judas turned out to be, huh? The psalmist says, It was not an enemy that reproached me. I could have hid myself from him. It was you. A man mine equal, my guide, mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together. We went to the house of God together. You know, it's striking to me that up until this point, no one but Jesus had any clue what Jesus was going to do and no one had any inkling That Jesus thought anything different about Judas than he did about any of the other disciples. Think about this for a moment. You're sitting around the campfire. Talking with your disciples. You're Jesus. You glance over and see this Judas. And you know what's going on in his heart and mind. You know how he's going to betray you. You know what he really is. Don't you think you would be tempted to expose him and shut him out? The other disciples never knew. It's because Jesus is better than you and me, isn't he? He had a great heart of love. And even knowing what Judas was, he loved him and called him friend. What's more, he told us to follow his example. Here's what he said in John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Loving one another is one thing. Loving one another the way Christ loved us is quite another thing. Jesus loved Judas in spite of who Judas was. Think of the Worst villains in human history that you can think of. Who was worse than Judas Iscariot? And yet Christ loved him. So I want you to love like I loved. You have any villains in your life? Anybody who rubs you the wrong way? Anybody you think is the scum of the earth? No worse than Judas. And Jesus loved him. And he said, I want you to love like I loved. Wow. The Old Testament anticipated Judas. It anticipated his betrayal. It anticipated his friendship. It anticipated his payment. This is from Zechariah chapter 11. Verse 12 says this. I said unto them, if you think good, give me my price and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price, they negotiated. Thirty pieces of silver, the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter's house, or excuse me, to the potter in the house of the Lord. Compare that passage that was written 500 years before Christ with these words from Matthew 26, verse 14. Verse 14. At this point, Judas has thought better of what he did to Christ, and he goes back to the Jews. It says, one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest, said to them, excuse me, I'm, I'm ahead of myself, ahead of the story, He hasn't yet gone back to them, now he's negotiating. He's negotiating with them, he says, what will you give me? I'll deliver him unto you. They covenanted with him for, you know the amount, 30 pieces of silver. Where did they get that price? Folks, that price was determined 500 years earlier in the book of Zechariah. God was setting the stage. These Jewish leaders, these chief priests, had no clue how they were fulfilling a prophecy about the man they despised, but they were. But there's more than just the price. There is that fact that after the fact Judas felt bad about what he did and returned to the Jewish leaders. This is Matthew 27, verse 6. Judas returned the money and gave it to them. And verse 6 says, The chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It's not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it's the price of blood. They took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. What's this with the potter's field? Well, you go back to Zechariah, Zechariah tells us, Cast it to the potter. The money they paid for me, they'll use it to buy the potter's field. 500 years before the fact, in exact detail, it's exactly what happened. The Old Testament tells us a lot about Judas. It tells us about his betrayal, his friendship, his payment. It even kind of foreshadows his death. You remember the story of Ahithophel? Ahithophel who betrayed David? You could say that Judas is the one who betrayed David's greater son, the greater David, because Christ will sit on David's throne, and he's referred to as the greater David. You know how Ahithophel died? The story is this. He advised Absalom to go quickly after, after David and, and get him while he was tired and kill him fast before he got away. Another advisor advised against it, and they went with Hushai's advice, not Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel knew that then that the game was up and that Absalom could never defeat his father. And so Ahithophel, this is 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23, Ahithophel put his household in order. If you ever wonder where that expression, put your house in order, comes from, there it is. He put his household in order and went out and hanged himself. You know what Judas did? He went back to the temple, tried to put his house in order, and went out and hanged himself. Now, I'm not suggesting the story of Ahithophel is intended to be a prophecy but it certainly foreshadows what happened with Judas Iscariot, doesn't it? He betrayed his master, he regretted his betrayal, and he went out and hanged himself. From the Old Testament, you learn some about Judas' betrayal, his friendship, his payment, his death, and finally, his replacement. This is Psalm 109, verse 8. It says, Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. The reason I know that is Messianic is because of how it's used in your New Testament. You'll find it in Acts chapter 1 and verse 20. The story is this. Christ had ascended into heaven, and before his ascension, he told the disciples, tarry in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes. And so they were staying, hanging out in Jerusalem. They stayed in the upper room. There was 120 of them. And... Jesus had earlier told his disciples that they would sit on 12 thrones to, to rule or judge the 12 tribes of Israel. But Judas is gone, and they think we've got to replace the guy. So Peter stands up and says, okay, it's time now to replace this man Judas. And here's what he says. It is written, this is Acts 1.20, in the book of Psalms, specifically Psalms 109, verse 8. It is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric, or his office, let another take. It's a direct quote from that psalm, isn't it? What Peter is telling us is the psalm was a prophecy, that this man would lose his place, we need to put someone else in his place to take his place. If Psalm Psalm 108 Excuse me, 109 verse 8 speaks about Judas, so does verse 9. And it tells us some interesting things about him. Here's what that verse says. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Oh, then before that it says, let his days be few. Here's three things I can tell you about Judas that you wouldn't see in the New Testament. One, he was a relatively young man. Let his days be few. Two, he was married. His wife would be a widow. And three, he had children, at least two of them. It says, let his children be fatherless. Hmm. The Old Testament tells us a lot about Judas, doesn't it? It tells us about his betrayal, his friendship, his payment, his death, and his replacement. And what a tragic life it was. There are many lessons we could draw from the story of Judas. Let me give you three very quickly. Number one is this. There's a difference between knowing Jesus and knowing Jesus. Judas knew Jesus. He knew him in ways that you and I never will. He walked those dusty paths all over Palestine with Christ. I've never done that. He slept by the campfire with Christ. I've never done that. But did he really know Jesus? Not in his heart. It's not enough to know about Jesus. You need to know him. If you don't know him, trust him today. second lesson is this. There's a difference between knowing Jesus and living for Jesus. Judas was living for Judas. Even in the presence of Christ, his focus was Judas. What's your focus? Is your focus you or is your focus living for Christ? The third lesson is this. There's a difference between loving others and loving as Christ loved. Christ loved one like Judas. I wonder if there are any Judas figures in your life and how you're doing with loving them. Let's learn from the life of Judas to be like Jesus and not like Judas. Let's pray together, shall we? And Father, I thank you for the things we can learn, even from a, a wasted, tragic life like that of Judas Iscariot. May we take these things to heart. And Father, if there are those here who know about you but really don't know you, bring them to a true understanding, a, a, an intimate genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And Father, help us learn from Judas not to live for ourselves, but to live for you. And from the example of Christ, to love others as he loved. May we take these things to heart and live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.